Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 279. Today's big Bible question is, why is wisdom so important in 2020? So happy Thursday to you, dear friends, and I'll go ahead and confess out of the gate that today's big Bible question is really more of a small Bible question because we're going to do another episode today where we cover all four chapters I do want to start out with a missed treasure from quite a few episodes ago, but it's so interesting that I don't want it to pass without comment. On episode number 217 of the Bible Reading Podcast, way back in the day, we discussed the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Jesus in Matthew and also by the prophet Daniel. And our old friend, Chief Inspector Where What Huh, left a comment on that episode on our YouTube page, and somehow, some way, I missed it and only recently found it. So here is his comment. It's good stuff if you are into the last days and the second coming of Jesus. So he says, With regard to the abomination of desolation, there are three Jewish temples, not counting the temple made without hands, in history. The first temple is Solomon's, 1000 BC to roughly 500 BCE, and it was defiled when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. The second temple, circa 450 BCE to 70 Common Era, was restored badly by Ezra and Nehemiah, and in the first century AD was still being remodeled and improved by Herod the Great. It was defiled by Vespasian at the beginning of the Jewish wars leading to the Great Diaspora. The third and final temple has not yet been built and will be defiled by the Antichrist at the midpoint of the Tribulation. The abomination of desolation of the second temple was an act by the Roman Emperor Vespasian who demanded that a statue of himself be placed in the most holy place. That action led to the Jewish wars of 62-69 through 69 CE, which led to the destruction of... Jerusalem and the, of the temple. The siege of Jerusalem was so horrible, and we know about this from Flavius Josephus, that those who saw Vespasian's statue standing where it ought not to be, an abomination that led to desolation, those seeing such a thing were well advised to flee to the mountains and to pray that it would not happen during winter, as Jesus advised. Jesus' predictions here came to fruition within 40 years after his death. The abomination of desolation of the third temple we may reasonably assert to be similar in nature to the end of the second temple. We might reasonably expect an idol to be placed in the temple in betrayal of the worshippers therein. We might also reasonably expect a battle that is devastating, that is as devastating to the modern Jerusalem as the siege of Jerusalem in 69-70 CE. Woe to those within that city in that day. Also, where what, huh, notes that the delay of 40 years after the crucifixion is thought by some to be because of the piety of James the Just, brother of Jesus. James was known for his precise practice of Judaism, including frequent attendance upon the temple. James was executed on the orders of Ananias, according to Josephus, removing this as a bar against the destruction of the temple. From a purely theological standpoint, the second temple was unnecessary following the resurrection because its purpose was fulfilled. Amen and true. And thank you, Chief Inspector, for that insight. And I'm sorry I missed it when you first posted it. Today's Bible readings, friends, are all going to be focus passages, as we've already mentioned, because there's just content in every reading that we need to discuss. So we'll begin with 1 Kings 3, then Psalms 83 and 84, 
as well as Ezekiel 34 and Ephesians 1. In 1 Kings 3, we see the famous episode where God offers Solomon anything he wants, and Solomon wisely chooses wisdom. So let's read and discuss that passage. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Solomon brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace, the Lord's temple, and the walls surrounding Jerusalem. However, the people were sacrificing on the high places because until that time, a temple for the Lord's name had not been built. Solomon loved the Lord by walking in the statutes of his father David, but he also sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there because it was the most famous high place. He offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. God said, ask, what should I give you? And Solomon replied, you have shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity. You have continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne as it is today. Lord my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place, yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this, so God said to him, Because you have requested this and did not ask for long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, but you asked discernment for yourself to administer justice, I will therefore do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor, so that no king will be your equal during your entire life. If you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commands just as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon woke up and realized it had been a dream. He went to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he held a feast for all his servants. Then two women who were prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One woman said, Please, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was in the house. On the third day after I gave birth, she also had a baby, and we were alone. No one else was with us in the house, just the two of us were there. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. She got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your servant was asleep. She laid him in her arms and she put her dead son in my arms. When I got up this morning to nurse my son, I discovered he was dead. That morning, when I looked closely at him, I realized that he was not the son I gave birth to. No, the other woman said. My son is the living one. Your son is the dead one. The first woman said, No, your son is the dead one. My son is the living one. So they argued before the king. The king replied, This woman says, This is my son who is alive and your son is dead. But that woman says, No, your son is dead and my son is alive. The king continued, Bring me a sword. So they brought the sword to the king. And the king said, Cut the living boy in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive spoke to the king because she felt great compassion for her son. My lord, give her the living baby, she said, but please don't have him killed. But the other one said, he will not be mine or yours. Cut him in two. The king responded, give the living baby to the first woman and don't kill him. She is his mother. 
All Israel heard about the judgment the king had given, and they stood in awe of the king because they saw that God's wisdom was in him to carry out justice. Now, interestingly, I don't know if you noticed, but the Bible does not actually say in this passage that Solomon asks for wisdom here, but it does go on to say that he sort of, that God gave him wisdom in 1 Kings 4, and the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 1 does indicate that not First Chronicles 1, but it's in First Chronicles, does indicate that Solomon asked for wisdom there. And I really do like Solomon's specific request. And I have prayed, and other pastors I've worked with uh, have prayed the same thing. Who is able to govern this, your great people? Solomon asked for understanding, an understanding mind to lead his people that he might discern between good and evil. Man, leadership is so difficult right now. I can't think of a more difficult year to lead in than 2020. I pray every day and really every night for wisdom right now. Who in the world is up for the task of shepherding and leading a family, a business, or a church family during these pandemic times when it's just so confusing to know who to listen to, what government official to listen to, or ignore them all, what medical expert to listen to? My goodness, it's so confusing. And when people's opinions are so strong one way or the other and practically violent in nature. Listen, friends. If you think you know exactly what is going on right now vis-a-vis this pandemic and you think you can see crystal clear in the midst of it, then let me tell you something. You are either wiser than Solomon and able to see with amazing clarity when everybody else is shrouded in fog and can barely see five feet in front of their face, or you are deluded and you only think you can see clearly. Because man, these are confusing times. We must ask God the same as Solomon did, because we all have great need of wisdom right now. And good news on that prayer, James 1.5 tells us, Now if any one of you lacks wisdom, and I do, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. What a wonderful promise to stand on. Now, we will discuss this in the coming days, but I should note here that one dose of wisdom from God to Solomon was not enough. Knowing is never half the battle, and even though Solomon knew God's word and had an incredible amount of wisdom, he did not follow that wisdom and instead thought himself able to disobey God's king commands and still thrive as the king of God's people. Not even his great wisdom enabled him to do that. Solomon is a cautionary tale for the wise and the gifted. And that brings us to Psalm chapter 84. And we're going to read 83 first and then 84 and focus a little bit more on 84 than 83. Psalm chapter 83, verse 1. God, do not keep silent. Do not be deaf. God, do not be quiet. See how your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have acted arrogantly. They devise clever schemes against your people. They conspire against your treasured ones. They say, come, let's wipe them out as a nation so that Israel's name will no longer be remembered for they have conspired with one mind. They form an alliance against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Even Assyria has joined them. They lend support to the sons of Lot, Selah. Deal with them as you did with Midian, as you did with Sisera and Jabin at the Kishon River. They were destroyed at Endor. They became manure for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb and all their tribal leaders like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, 
Let's seize God's pastures for ourselves. Make them like tumbleweed, my God, like straw before the wind. As fire burns a forest, as a flame blazes through mountains, so pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame so that they will seek your name, Lord. Let them be put to shame and terrified forever. Let them perish in disgrace. May they know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over the whole earth. Psalm 84, verse 1, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of armies! I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Even a sparrow finds a home and a swallow, a nest for herself, where she places her young near your altars, Lord of armies. My King and my God, how happy are those who reside in your house, who praise you continually, Selah. Happy are the people whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a source of spring water. Even the autumn rain will cover it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Each appears before God in Zion. Lord God of armies, hear my prayer. Listen, God of Jacob. Selah. Consider our shield, God. Look on the face of your anointed one. Better a day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than live in the tents of wicked people. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord grants favor and honor. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. Happy is the person who trusts in you, Lord of armies. Amen. Psalm 84 is an amazing passage pointing out how wonderful it is to be in the house of the Lord, to be in the presence of the Lord. I love Spurgeon's commentary on this passage. He says, a day in the courts of God is better than a thousand elsewhere. Of course, the psalmist means a thousand days spent anywhere under the most favorable circumstances in which earth's pleasures can be enjoyed. They are not comparable by so much as one in a thousand to the delights of the service of God. To feel his love, to rejoice in the person of the anointed Savior, to survey the promises and feel the power of the Holy Ghost in applying precious truth to the soul is a joy which worldlings cannot understand, but which true believers are ravished with. Even a glimpse of the love of God is better than ages spent in the pleasures of sense. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. The lowest station in connection with the Lord's house is better than the highest position among the godless. Only to wait at his threshold and look within so as to see Jesus is bliss. To bear burdens and open doors for the Lord is more honor than to reign among the wicked. Every man has his choice and this is ours. God's worst is better than the devil's best. God's doorstep is a happier rest than downy couches within the pavilions of royal sinners, though we might lie there for a lifetime of luxury. Note how he calls the tabernacle the house of my God. There's where the sweetness lies. If Jehovah be our God, his house, his altars, his doorstep all become precious to us. We know by experience that where Jesus is within, the outside of the house is better than the noblest chambers where the Son of God is not to be found. Amen and amen. And then we get to Ezekiel 34, where God just absolutely calls out the shepherds and leaders of his people. If you're in any sort of leadership or ministry or pastoral role whatsoever, let this passage penetrate you, dear friends. Listen closely For God's understanding and definition of what a spiritual leader of his people should be like, how they are called to care for his people, 
and the dangers of such leaders developing a serve-me mentality. Let's also pay attention to God's challenge to those cruel and selfish people who have gotten rich and powerful on the backs of other people. Ezekiel chapter 34 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. My flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. Because my flock, lacking a shepherd, has become prey and food for every wild animal. And because my shepherds do not search for my flock, and because the shepherds feed themselves rather than my flock, therefore you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my flock from them and prevent them from shepherding the flock. The shepherds will no longer feed themselves, for I will rescue my flock from their mouths so that they will not be food for them. For this is what the Lord God says, See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them to their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and on all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, Bandage the injured and strengthen the weak, but I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them with justice. As for you, my flock, the Lord God says this, Look, I am going to judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the goats. Isn't it enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Or isn't it enough that you drink the clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Yet my flock has to feed on what your feet have trampled and drink what your feet have muddied. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Since you have pushed with flank and shoulder and butted all the weak ones with your horns until you scattered them all over, I will save my flock. They will no longer be prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd." I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate dangerous creatures from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the forest. I will make them in the area around my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in their season. They will be showers of blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit and the land will yield its produce. My flock will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the power of those who enslave them. 
They will no longer be prey for the nations, and the wild creatures of the earth will not consume them. They will live securely, and no one will frighten them. I will establish for them a place renowned for its agriculture, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land. They will no longer endure the insults of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people. This is the declaration of the Lord God. You are my flock, the human flock of my pasture, and I am your God. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Amen. So those who have gained power, wealth, privilege by trampling over others will be judged by God. And those that were trampled will be shepherded and taken care of by Jesus himself. So that is good news along the lines of the meek inheriting the earth. Finally, we come to Ephesians chapter 1, one of the most glorious books of the Bible, with some of the deepest and most profound truths. Let's read it together. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the Beloved One. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ, as a plan for the right time to bring everyone together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we also have received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Well, amen. Verse 13 and 14. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance, says Paul. Tim Keller, commenting on this passage, says, Becoming a Christian is to receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is a down payment, a deposit, which means it's the first installation, the first installment of the future redemption of the universe. It's a down payment of the future to come into your life. That's the reason 1 Peter 1 has the audacity to say, 
We're born again into a living hope. There's a future. And when our connection to that future becomes a living thing in our lives, it so changes us, we have to talk in terms of dying and rising. That's good stuff there. And what an amazing and unheralded, or at least rarely heralded truth that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a deposit, as a down payment on the salvation that is to come when Jesus returns. So I want to close with the words of prayer, the apostolic prayer found in verses 17 through 19. If you want to learn how to pray, go directly to the prayers of Jesus like John 17 and the apostolic prayers in scripture because they're inspired directly by the Holy Spirit. They're God-breathed. Those are better places to learn how to pray than a thousand books on prayer. So let's close with this apostolic prayer, verses 17 through 19. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. And friends, may you know those things by the power of God, the salvation of Jesus, and the illuminating of the Holy Spirit. Good day to you and Godspeed.